Please take your copy of God's word. Let's turn together to Genesis chapter 30. Genesis 30. Actually, we're going to back up and read a few verses from chapter 29. Um, the text really extends from chapter 29, verse 31, all the way to the end of chapter 30. Um, and in many ways, this is uh, yet another large section. Uh, it may feel to you like we're hurrying along. I had a Old Testament professor in college, a guy named Harvey Hartman. Uh, I took Old Testament survey from him, and he called his class hurrying through the Old Testament with Harvey um, because we were moving at a rapid clip uh, in order to cover the entire Old Testament. You might feel that way as we're going through Genesis, these large sections, hurrying through Genesis with Sean. That's kind of what we're doing, but yet we're not because, of course, this is, this is really one whole section uh, a section that begins here with uh, Leah having children and ends uh, with Jacob uh, wrestling with uh, Laban. There's a summary statement at the end of the chapter that actually marks it off as a discrete section here in Moses' narrative. So this is fitting for us to consider, uh, but it's also fitting for us to consider as a whole because it really is raising a question for us, namely, what is God's place in our lives? I mean, that that's the question that Jacob will ask his wife, Rachel, am I in the place of God? All too often, we, uh, we take our own place uh, in our lives. We put ourselves at the center or we put some, some other thing in the center of our lives, whether it's a relationship, whether it's our spouse, whether it's our kids, whether it's our money, our possessions, our, our job, whatever it may be. We put all kinds of other good things in the place of God. We need to see how that's the case, but God wants to do more than simply convict us this morning. He wants to lead us by his grace to take our eyes and to turn them to Jesus. But in order for that to happen for us this morning, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come to you as your people. And we pray that once again you would rend the heavens and come down and you would meet with us. And you would take your word and you would speak it to us. You would show us ourselves as in a mirror of the word. But you would also show us yourself, your goodness, your grace, and the ways you desire to satisfy us. And so, Lord, we pray, come. Holy Spirit, come. Open our eyes of faith that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have it in your worship booklets, we're only going to read to verse uh, 25, uh, 24, um, but we're taking the entire chapter for the sermon. So backing up then to Genesis 29, verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren and Leah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Reuben for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. 
Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has heard, also heard my voice and given me a son. Then she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with, a, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went in and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you now take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me. For I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, and God opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Thus far, God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it's, it's not always easy to know what God's place is in our lives, and especially in the messy situations in which we find ourselves, whether it's in conflict in our families or challenges in the workplace, or as we make our way through our lives, we, we often talk about God having first place in our lives. We know what Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and yet it's hard it's hard for us to figure out exactly what that means or what that looks like. Two, we think that blessing means happiness and peace and that when we know prosperity, it comes in a straight line of progress. But, but this text shows us that as, as Jacob's family and his flocks grow, all is not what it's cracked up to be. Tension is rife in this family. Conflict is his daily existence. He's going to know struggle between the sisters, struggle with his spouses, struggle with his in-laws. And we know what that's like too, don't we? 
We know what it's like to go through life uh, experiencing conflict in our families, struggle with our in-laws, trying to figure out how to manage all our possessions. When I, when I do premarital counseling, I, I talk about the three most common areas or reasons why people divorce, which would be sex, money, and in-laws, right? Those are areas where conflict naturally occurs. And when conflict occurs, and when we know struggle and difficulty, that's where we wonder, where is God? What's God's place in all of this? I mean, there had to have been days in which Jacob woke up in the morning and he wondered to himself, what in the world have I gotten myself into? I mean, when he got to Padanaram and God had sovereignly, providentially guided him right to Leah and he fell in love in an instant so that he would work seven years for her and it seemed like just a few days, I'm sure he didn't envision this. He didn't envision all of this conflict. And he had to have been wondering, where's the God of Bethel? Where's the God who had made these great promises? Promises that he would be with me, that he would bless me, that, I, that I, my, my posterity would be like the dust of the earth. Where's, where's that God? Where's his place in this whole story? Well, where's his place? What's his place? Well, he's right here. He's here in the midst of all of this mess. God hasn't abandoned Jacob. In fact, we find here that God's place in the, this narrative is found in his favor and grace. It's undeserved, uncoerced, unmerited. Jacob doesn't deserve any of this. None of these people deserve any of this. But in fact, God's grace is the rock underneath Jacob's feet. It's, it's God's grace. It's the sure hand that's guiding him. And when we get to the end of chapter 30 and we, we find this, this great summary statement that the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, camels, donkeys. Jacob didn't do that. He didn't build that. That's the favor, the grace, the blessing of God. But the pathway that God leads Jacob to that blessing, it's a strange and weird and wild trip, isn't it? It's full of conflict and tension. It's full of difficulty. What's going on here? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that what's going on here is that God in his grace is trying to wean Jacob's heart from lesser loves. To lead him to himself. Because all too often, our great struggle when it comes to counterfeit gods, to idols, isn't that we go and just directly worship something that we know that is wrong. Rather, our, our great struggle is we take good things and we make them ultimate things. We take the good gifts that God's given us, and instead of allowing God by his grace to lead us from those gifts to the giver of those gifts, we worship the gifts. We look for the gifts to actually satisfy the deep holes in our heart that only God can fill. That's part of the struggle here. As, as Jacob struggles with, with his own family. Jacob's family is one of these good gifts that God gives, and yet it becomes a, a source of deep pain and struggle and perhaps even disappointment. And we can understand that. Because, of course, there's no greater potential for us, no greater potential idol that we have, especially as evangelical believers, than our families. We, we, we're single, 
And we, we longed for a companion so that, so that the deep holes of loneliness that we feel might be, might be satisfied, might be met in some way. And that's a good thing and a good desire. But then when we get married, we're looking for that spouse to actually to, to fill that hole, to fill that loneliness, to somehow be the, the savior that we desperately need so that we can somehow know realization and fulfillment and we might know some measure of blessing and we put all kinds of weight on our spouses, on our wives, on our husbands, expecting them to save us. We take a good gift and we make it an ultimate thing. And when our, when our marriages begin to struggle, where do we turn? Where do we look? Well, if God blesses us with children, we, we start to look at our kids and we see in their activities and in their growth and in their development, something that gives us meaning and fulfillment. And as mothers and fathers, we devote our lives to them. And we look to them to actually fill those holes in our hearts. But they can never do that. None of these relationships that we have can. No, these are good gifts. Our marriages, yes. Our children, they're good gifts. They can never bear the weight of being ultimate things. As we see here in this text, Jacob's family is a place of pain and disappointment. And yet, even in the midst of it all, though, though Leah and Rachel and Jacob and the children are each putting one another in the place of God, even in the midst of that, God's still at work. He's still at work, even in the midst of the struggle. Certainly that's the case for Leah, the one who's unloved and yet beloved. I mean, Moses is stressed how unloved Leah is. Now, at the end of the last section, which we looked at last time, in chapter 29, verse 30, Moses wrote, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And in case we miss it, the very first verse of the section we read together this morning, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated or that Leah was not loved, what a burden this is for Leah. What a burden it is for anyone to be in a marriage where you know that the other person doesn't love you. Not just that there's some conflict with underlying it. No, Leah very much felt unloved. In fact, when she names one of these boys, she says, the Lord has heard that I am hated. She knows she's unloved. Jacob should have sympathized with her. After all, he's the unloved son, isn't he? In the struggle between Esau and Jacob, who did Isaac love more? Right, Esau. Jacob's the unloved son. He's sent away. And, I mean, Jacob should have recognized in Leah someone who needed his care and concern, not, not his rejection. And yet Leah does no rejection. The one thing that God gives her are these boys, these children, and she names them as a way of, of, of trying to woo her husband to, to come into her life and to fulfill her in ways that meet her deepest needs. I mean, she bears Reuben. In chapter 29, verse 32, what does she say? Because the Lord has looked on my affliction. For now, now that I have Reuben, my husband will love me. And then she bears Simeon. Chapter 29, verse 33, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. 
And then again with Levi, chapter 29, verse 34. Now this time, my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And yet, even though she's given Jacob child after child, thinking that, that these children would bind Jacob's heart to her own, she's unloved. So much so that it appears later in the chapter that Jacob will stop sleeping with her. See, Leah wanted Jacob to take God's place in her heart. But Jacob wouldn't, and he couldn't do that. But even in the midst of all of this struggle and pain and the deep loneliness that she's feeling, someone else is knocking. Someone else is knocking at the door of her heart. Do you know who that is? Well, it's God. God's the one who's actually knocking on her heart in the midst of her pain and her sense of rejection. How do we know that? We know that at least in part because of what she says after Judah is born. There at the end of chapter 29 in verse 35, she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah this time. Previous time she said, This time, now my husband will pay attention to me. Now he'll love me. Now he'll be attached to me. This time. I will rest my heart in Yahweh. I will praise the covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. In other words, I won't look to my husband to satisfy the deep place of my heart to somehow be my savior. No, this time I'm going to trust myself to this God who has been carrying us all along, even in the midst of my pain, even in the midst of my struggle, even in the midst of my loneliness, I will trust the Lord. Leah is the one who's unloved, and yet she discovers she's actually beloved beloved by a god who is who's chasing her through all of this which is quite different from the way rachel responds isn't it rachel is barren and bitter i mean the last time we saw rachel she's she's the sought after bride she was the one who's beautiful if we were to put her forward today she'd be the head of her sorority she'd be the leader of of junior auxiliary she'd be the beautiful well-equipped talented person and she's marrying this one who sought her and worked seven years for her it was going to be storybook a storybook wedding of soulmates the only words we hear rachel speak in this entire story are found in the first nine verses of this chapter And when when you hear what Rachel has to say, what you discover is what she thought or may have thought was going to be a storybook marriage ended up being a bit of a nightmare. I mean, she's unable to have children while her sister is incredibly fertile. And the envy and the anger and the bitterness is such that she will yell at Jacob in chapter 30, verse 1. Give me children or I shall die. Of course, Rachel forgot in her rage and in her bitterness that that Jacob's not able to do this. That that's something God does. Every conception, every birth is a miracle of God, ultimately. And Jacob rises up in anger. His anger is kindled. Verse 2 tells you, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Now, some think that Jacob's blaming God here. I think he's just naming reality. It's not in Jacob's power to give Rachel what her heart craved. Only God could do that. That's God's rightful place. But it doesn't stop Rachel from trying. She gives over her maidservant, Bilhah, 
and says, you, go have children. I'll claim them for my own. And Bilhah bears two children, actually pretty quickly. And when she names Dan and especially Naphtali, what is it that Rachel says? Well, in verse 8, she says, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I prevailed. What does that tell you? It wasn't about the children. At some level, what's going on in Rachel's heart is a deep and bitter struggle with her sister as they battle one another for the affection of their husband. It's a wrestling match, if you will. A wrestling match that one must win and the other must lose. In the end, of course, nobody wins. Rachel doesn't win, Leah doesn't win, Jacob doesn't win, their children don't win. Nobody wins this kind of conflict. And yet, in the midst of all of this, this family is profoundly conflicted, but it's also blessed. The absolute bottom of the conflict occurs in verses 14 to 16. Uh, apparently, the firstborn son, Reuben, has discovered mandrakes in a field. In the ancient Near Eastern world, mandrakes were viewed as a kind of aphrodisiac. And so Rachel desires those mandrakes for herself. She thinks that perhaps they might help her conceive. And so she asks Leah whether she could have some of those mandrakes. And the response is, in fact, quite bitter. Verse 15, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? To which Rachel responds, then he may lie with you, denied in exchange for your mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. This is where Jacob's family has come to. This is how the, the conflict is devolved down. He's being hired out sexually like a male prostitute within his own family. Yuck. This is how bad things can get in a family. And yet, even in the midst of all of this conflict, God hasn't abandoned Jacob's family. He hasn't abandoned Leah. He hasn't abandoned Jacob, but he also hasn't abandoned Rachel. That's what verse 22 tells you. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. Now, how did she conceive in the end? Well, God intervened. He was the one who blessed. In fact, he's the one who's working all on the way behind all of this. Jacob goes forth from his family. He makes his way to Padanaram. He's a loner. He's one single man. Here we are, 20 years later, he has 12, 12 sons, other children. In fact, he's, he's blessed beyond what he could possibly have imagined when he was there seeing that vision dream at Bethel. But the pathway to this blessing, it wasn't a straight one, was it? It was filled with disappointment and sorrow. Why? Why did these things become disappointments? Why was there struggle and conflict? Because the good things, the good gifts of family... They became ultimate things. Instead of those good gifts leading Jacob and Leah and Rachel to trust in, in God, 
became a way to battle one another for the kingdom of themselves rather than the kingdom of God. But it wasn't just in Jacob's family that he experienced this. It was also with his flocks. Joseph's birth actually triggers within Jacob a determination to go home. In fact, it says in verse 25, As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go. For you know the service I have given you. Of course, Laban's no, in no hurry to see his daughters and his grandchildren and his best employee leave. And so, so Laban and Jacob, they match wits as they scheme against one another. Again, like Genesis 29, verse 15, Laban once again invites Jacob to tell me what you want. Name your wages. You see it in verse 27. Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Of course, didn't need divination. He could just look around and see. Verse 28, name your wages and I will give it. So what does Jacob name? Well, he names flocks. And he, he lays out this scheme. He says to Laban, give me all your striped and your spotted lambs or goats. Those were ones that would be less valuable, particularly compared to those that are completely or mostly white or black sheep or goats. And in the midst of this, we trying to figure out what's all this with the flocks and stripes and spotted. You can't miss. This isn't about sheep, ultimately. Not about goats, finally. This is about money. It's about wealth. It's about possessions. And ultimately, it's about power. Because in the ancient Near Eastern world, sheep and goats were a kind of currency. This is a battle, a struggle. In the previous section, it was a struggle between the sisters, between Leah and Rachel, here, it's a struggle with the in-laws, Jacob versus Laban. But one's going to win and one must lose. That's, that's part of the conflict. And it's Laban who strikes the first blow. He secretly will remove all of the striped and spotted flocks that are already in his flock. And he moves them three days away and he puts them under the care of his sons. He's not going to give Jacob a head start with a bunch of striped and spotted animals with which to work. And presumably, that would prevent further breeding, and it would delay any success that Jacob might have. But though Laban lays out this scheme, he, he's ultimately going to fall prey to Jacob. Jacob's scheme is going to be the one that finds success, and he's going to attribute this success to two breeding approaches. One appears to have no basis in genetics. What does he do? He takes branches from uh, almond trees and poplar trees and, and the plane tree and he strips off the bark, revealing kind of a striped and spotted underbelly. And he lays those branches around the places near where the sheep and the goats might mate. And what happened? Well, the flocks brought forth striped and speckled and spotted, chapter 30, verse 39 tells you. The second thing Jacob does actually has a basis in genetics. He looks out among the flock and he sees which sheep and goats are stronger. And he mates those. And he sees which ones are weaker. And he mates those. Lo and behold, the stronger ones were the ones that bore striped and spotted animals. And the result is that Jacob ends up with the better part of the flock. Not just the larger part of the flock, but also in terms of quality, the better part of the flock. 
Why did Jacob have success? Why, why were Laban's flocks now his flocks? Because God blessed him. I mean, the, that's the clear indication. He's the one who gave him the flocks. He's the one who gave him the wealth, the property, the possessions, the power. So that the final summary in verse 43 is ultimately God's doing. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. The original language there for verse 43 where it says the man increased greatly. The man teemed abundantly. It's picturesque, and it, and it echoes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, where the fish team in the sea. And God had promised Jacob at Bethel that he would be, his, his offspring would be like the dust of the earth. The, the dust would team over the earth. Well, here it is. God had kept his promise through pain and difficulty, heartache and conflict, though there was the ever-present danger of idolatry, of making good things, ultimate things. God's the one who's still at work in all of this. He's keeping his promises. If Jacob just had eyes to see, the question will be, does he? Does he have eyes to see that God is in this place, as he said at Bethel? Does he have eyes to see in the midst of all the conflict in his family and all the conflict over the flocks that God is the one at work? Does he have eyes to see that really at the end of the day, it's God's favor, God's grace, undeserved, unmerited, uncoerced, that's actually the reason why he's prospering. I, Jacob will recognize that in the next two chapters. And certainly as he wrestles with the angel at, at Peniel, he will recognize that, that God is the one who's been wrestling with him all along. But for now, just simply reflect on this. Throughout this chapter, Jacob and Leah and Rachel, they've been trying to make good things ultimate things. And they've been trying to find salvation in their, in their marriages and their families and the possessions. But, but what did they discover? Well, incredible and painful disappointment, didn't they? But some of us know what that feels like. Some of you know what that feels like. You thought your marriage was going to be the perfect love story. You were soulmates. You were well-paired. That's what everybody said when they looked at you. But now here you are, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 years down the road. And as you look back over the narrative of your marriage, what do you find? It's been a struggle. There's been conflict and disappointment. There's been frustration. You keep wondering, why is it that this one, this wife, this husband can't meet the deepest needs of my heart? Could it be that it's because you've taken God's good gift? A good gift, yes, of companionship, friendship, good spouse. You've taken that good gift and you've made it an ultimate gift. So that you've tried to make your spouse Jesus to you. To do what only Jesus can do for you? And instead of seeing your spouse as a good gift, what do we do? All too often, seeing it over and again, we, we move to our children, if God blesses us with children. We look at our kids and we say, you're the one that's going to satisfy my heart. You don't ever say that out loud, but you become very invested in their education, in their activities, in their sports, their extracurriculars. 
as you, as you plot and plan and struggle and strive so that they become everything. And that's the glue that's holding you both together, husband and wife, relating to one another through the children. Their success becomes your success. But what happens? Well, our children fail us. They disappoint us. They reject us. And even if they're wonderful children and you have a great relationship to them, with them, they do an awful thing. They grow up, get married, and move out of town. And then where are we? We're right back where we started, with our empty hearts, longing for something to fill that, that hole in our hearts, that, that big space in our heart, not realizing that God's good gift, the good gift of your children, were actually meant to lead you beyond yourself. And beyond those gifts, back to the giver. And so what do we do? We turn to our work and we try to build up our portfolios and we secure the nice house or the vacation home or the hunting camp, the boat, all the things we want. And some of us, some of you are incredibly successful. What's said of Jacob could be said of you. You have increased greatly and you have large flocks, female servants, male servants, camels, donkeys. What do you find? Those things can never satisfy and what's worse, we get caught in this endless loop of always having to try to get a little bit more. And that's because our possessions were never meant to satisfy our hearts. They were never meant to stand in the place of God. But friend, listen to me. If what I've described at all speaks to you, I've got good news for you this morning. In the midst of all your pain and frustration and disappointment, God is seeking you. God in his grace is, is pursuing you. That's why he gave you the good gifts to begin with. C.S. Lewis has this short little piece called Meditation in a Woodshed, or in a Tool Shed. Uh, and in, as he's in the darkness of the tool shed, there's a crack in the ceiling, and light is coming in. And as he sees the light come into the tool shed, he sees all kinds of things in the tool shed, all kinds of dust and particles and other things. But the light that's actually illuminating everything else, he says, it's actually meant for me to trace the beam back to the sun. All too often we look at the light, we look at the gifts, and we try to see everything else through these good gifts that God gives, but he means for us to trace the line back to the sun, back to himself, which means this morning God is pursuing you and he's trying to tell you to take your eyes from the gift and lead your eyes back to the giver, back to God himself. Because he is a good and gracious God who desires nothing less than your best, which will only be found when you desire him above all things. When he is, in fact, the ultimate thing in your life. So will you turn your eyes? Will you turn your eyes from these good gifts that God's given you? Turn your eyes to Jesus. We're going to sing it in a minute. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory in grace. Doesn't mean the, the things of earth are bad. Doesn't mean we denigrate them. No, the good things of this earth are meant to lead our eyes to Jesus. Will you look to him? Will you turn your eyes to him? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do bless you. 
that even in the midst of our struggle and our conflict and our pain and our disappointment, you don't give up on us. In fact, you gave us those good gifts to begin with, and you're continuing to pursue us to lead our eyes and our hearts to you. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask, do your work in us so that we might be more and more conformed to the image of Christ, more and more in love with him today than we were yesterday, more tomorrow than today. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.